You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. The 602 Club proudly presents Snyder Cuts, a Zack Snyder directorial podcast, and I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is every single week on this epic journey, John Mills. Yes, I am here. I am ready for battle, my captain. I'm ready to to charge into the battle of this podcast and prove my worth on the battlefields of, of Snyder Cuts. Excellent. Excellent. And it's going to be a big episode. I think um, maybe the most quintessential Zack Snyder film we've talked about thus far, 300. We're going to be diving into that uh, blood-filled, joy-filled, and exuberant-filled comic adaptation from Frank Miller uh, by Zack Snyder. But uh, before we get into that, um, just a reminder, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to the 602 Club feed. That makes you that makes sure that you get Snyder Cuts as well as the 602 Club. Follow us on Twitter. Please do at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash trackfm. Got the listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference, where you can talk to listeners all over the world. And of course, Trek.fm is our main hub for every show that we're doing here on the network, as well as um, all the th- things you can find. And want to say a quick thank you uh, to everybody who supports us through Patreon. Please, uh, it is a big deal. Uh, it costs so much money for what we do here on the network. So please go to patreon.com slash Trek.fm. See how you can be part of our team. We're revamping everything to make our contribution levels even better. Uh, but again, honestly, if you like what we do, it's all ad-free here, folks. Uh, so we need listeners just like you to make sure it keeps coming to you. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Um, John, I was kind of interested in, in to start this one with this, which is, how did you find 300? Was this a movie that you ended up seeing in the theater? Uh, was mm-hmm. this a movie that, you know, you saw later on? Where where did you first experience 300? I uh, saw it in the theater with my brother. Uh, he, you know, my brother's a lifelong comic book collector. And as his little brother, I'm a lifelong comic book stealer. And I had never read 300, but my brother was very hyped about it. I'd seen a trailer and I was like, that looks really interesting. And my brother said, Oh, the, the comic is great. I want to see what this, this plays like. And I remember the movie theater we saw it in. I remember where we sat in, I, like the section of the theater and everything. And I remember seeing it and I remember the, the smile on my brother's face uh, as he watched it. I remember the smile on my face. I remember how much fun we had with it. And that, so that was my first exposure. And I, I was one of those people that came out of the theater saying to everybody, you got to go see this thing. This is crazy. This is a, a, a crazy entertaining movie. You've got to go see it. This is so much fun. And that is, that was my first encounter with it. And, um, I've returned to it many times through the years and who doesn't know this movie at this point, right? I mean, how did I mean, you come to it? Did, did you see it in the theater? <laughs> That's the, you know, so I knew obviously, uh, that, um, you would ask and, um, I honestly can't remember. That's the oh. thing. Like, it's one of those things that I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or not. I feel like that I did, but I, I just don't know. Um, and, but this is definitely a movie that I have returned to over the years and, and seen, you know, again and, and again. Uh, and of course, it, 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 too, I think of, of returning to it every time, you know, like the Blu-ray come out, uh, returning it to it then, you know, it had the DVD before. Uh, and then, of course, you know, now returning to it here, I returned to it in the 4K edition. Um, so, you know, especially every time there's a new format, it's, it's a, a movie like this. It's, it's great to see in the best quality that you can. And so, uh, that, that's always, you know, it's one of those benchmark movies. Like, what does that look like on, you know, that format? And so, um, mm-hmm. 
I'm in, for you too. You you mentioned your brother read the comic. Had you ever read the comic at all? Not before I saw it. No. Okay. So I went. In, I went in as clean as possible. Now I've always been a Frank Miller fan. I mean, anybody who grew up even tangentially reading comics, uh, especially in my age range, you you wound up like Frank Miller with Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns. Once those happened, I mean, never mind his his run on Daredevil. Never mind his run. You know, like he he just has been legendary. Uh, you know, he was just like Alan Moore. It was like if you put his name on it. You were interested. You were going to see it. Garth Ennis occupied the same space when he came along. It was like, oh, hey, Garth Ennis is writing something. I'm going to watch. I'm going to read that. Um, so Frank Miller, that, I mean, that's basically all you had to say. It's based on a Frank Miller comic book. I'm like, okay, I'll go see it. And although not everything that <laughs> that was adapted from a Frank Miller comic book worked out perfectly, but hey, <laughs> um, you, know, you know, had its hits and misses. But um no, so like I, you know, that that's the funny thing is I was a comic book fan, and I've always found it's really interesting because there seems to be this uh, lane that this movie occupies where I have encountered people where their attitude is, oh well, you're a comic book fan, of course you liked it, you read it, you went and saw it, and it, it's just like the comic book and and stuff like that. But no, I I went it, I may as well have not ever read it with, because I hadn't. I was familiar with Miller's work. I, Zack right. Snyder, I knew the name because of Dawn of the Dead. And we talked about that last episode. I wasn't in love with it, you know, at the time and everything. Um, but I was like, okay, you know, I, I'll, I'll give it a shot. It looks interesting. It looks good. And, I, you know, that's the thing for me, right? Is this is a very ambitious movie. This is a very visually styled, sure of itself movie. Um, it's photographed beautifully and it uses digital technology. I mean, when you think about it, right, uh, you know, get your take on this, right? This is essentially ahead of the curve in terms of the way they have done things with like Avatar or something like that. This is a blue box movie, basically, where yeah. so much of this is digitally created and you go along with it because it's not supposed, it's not supposed to look a hundred percent real. And so you have that built-in forgiveness of any imperfections. But right. I think it also, with somebody who is as stylized as Snyder is, it's a terrific thing because of the fact that that digital playground gives them so much freedom to turn it into a living painting that, you know, this is, a, this is the only way this movie could be made, right? You, you can't have like a Cecil B. DeMille $200 billion you know, tons of extras. We're going to actually have, you know, a hundred thousand people on stage or, you know, in the fields for the, the charging Persian army or anything like that. You can't do that. And this is the only way this movie is going to get made. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, right before this, the year before, you know, Sin City had been adapted by Robert Rodriguez. And, uh, you know, I, I think, it kind of mm -hmm. set the stage for how you would do this movie as well. They're they're done very similarly. Right. And so it's interesting that two of the biggest Frank Miller books, you know, that aren't connected with some other franchise, you know, they're they're his works, um are are brought to the big screen and, and you know, uh in 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 much the same way, you know, they're they're shot very similarly. Uh, and you know what, forgive me, I the thing is I always get them flipped. I forgot I always forget that Sin City came out first. In my head, I go back and forth. I always forget which one came out first because they are they're they're contemporary. But yes, you know, so a lot of credit should go to Rodriguez for figuring out how to shoot that and be very stylized. But at the same time, you know, Snyder brings his own type of flair to this. There's a, a very different type of visual vibe to this and you know it's the digital filmmaking that gave them both the freedom sort of thing but i i yeah. do you ever do that do you ever like flip them like i, I was no, getting mixed I, I up as to which one came I, out first i literally had to look it up to make sure because i thought that sin city had come out after this and it had it yeah. was just a year before this so they're i mean they're they sit right next to each other and they're obviously probably in production uh overlapping each other as well so yeah. I, I almost wonder if they ever had a conversation, Rodriguez and, and Snyder, about this, since they're both working with Frank Miller here to, to bring his vision to life. Well, you know what? I mean, so long as we're talking about it, let me ask you, uh, Sin City, uh, you know, what, 
Which one of these would you prefer? What, like I, I, I give you two Sin copies. City yet. You've never seen Sin no, City. Okay, which well, after seeing briefly. this, it makes me want to go watch Sin City though and and see how that I'd be was really done. interested. So, yeah. I'd be really interested for your take on it because I think you can definitely tell that the source material is, you know, they're pulling from the same author basically. I think right. you can definitely tell that. There's there's yeah. definitely a Frank Miller story has certain DNA to it that you right. can tell uh you know who it who it came from sort of well, thing and one of the things that i was thinking of with this movie too and i was watching some of the behind the scene extras listening to zach talk and and one of the things that he mentioned you know is is they kept the whole idea of the narration that this is a story being told so mm-hmm. it, it allows for them to have the narrative license to be able to create the over-the-top uh visual imagery that they do and, you know, the the idea that, of course, the narrator is somebody who's smart. He never lets the truth get in, in the way of a good story. And I, I think that's what makes this so smart, you know, is that legitimately you feel that as you get into the film is that we're being told a story. And therefore, the story is somebody's interpretation of what happened. And it allows us to go on this fantastic adventure with these people. And it means that not everything needs to be quote unquote realistic, you know, like we don't, Mm -hmm. this isn't the most accurate representation of Sparta. This isn't the most accurate representation of the Persian army. You know, it is this character who's based in this world's storytelling ability to bring it to life. And obviously he's telling the story because he's trying to inspire people to continue on the battle. So, Right. To me, you know, I think uh, one of the things that I got immediately from this movie was that Snyder completely understood the material and that's what helps bring this to life. And what was great was he allows the actors some places where they get to make it up themselves and then there are those other places where he's legitimately we're going to do this exact same shot that's in the comic book. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so you some places they have the freedom, some places they don't have the freedom. But I think it all plays together really well so that you you never can't tell that there wasn't a scene or even a storyline from the comic book because it all feels seamless. Sure. I you know, I um something that I that always stuck with me was there was a bit of flack that this movie took when it was released. A lot of people were sort of scandalized by the idea that it was so seemingly, quote unquote, pro-war and and it was so, um, you know, the term didn't exist at the time, but, you know, toxic masculinity, all of that stuff was was packaged into this. And I it always stuck with me because getting back to the narration and what you were pointing out was Snyder specifically saying this is a story a guy is telling, and he said, what we're making here, and I think he said that he said this to the actors, we're making an anti-anti-war movie. The whole point of this story is supposed to be the framing device is this guy is getting everybody stoked to go out and run it, and most of these guys, especially on the front line, they're going to die, they're going to get cut up, they're going to get all of that stuff, and he is rallying everybody. How are you going to rally everybody up, get them to go nuts, frothing at the mouth, ready to go? You have to tell them a bigger than life legend. You have to go be like Leonidas, go out there and fight the way these valiant men fought. And that's going to get everybody up and going. And it just always struck me because I think this this movie has so much wit and so much cleverness about it that people lose sight of the fact that it's fully aware. It's saying to you, you're being manipulated. And then the wink of the framing device is to, I I think psychologically, it lets you as an audience member be okay with that. Right, right. Well, and I mean, I was reading, you know, Frank Miller even said, you know, he... Obviously, this is based off the Spartans, but he mm-hmm. only made the Spartans realistic enough to the point where people could still root for them in the story he was telling. You know, so there is a point in which he diverges and he doesn't go any further with the realities of, of the Spartan way of life. 
mm-hmm. and things that we would find, um, you know, distasteful these days. Um, and so, again, he's also making that storyteller point of view. You know, he's he he is, you know, originally Frank is the narrator who's choosing what to tell, what not to tell, how to tell the story so that you will root for these people in the end. Uh, and you'd want them to succeed in their mission. And, uh, you know, that's part of being a storyteller, right? You know, uh, and again, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we choose to give people the ability to root for these characters by letting them know they're being told a story that doesn't necessarily comport with all reality. And therefore you don't have to feel bad for rooting for one side or the other, um, because this, this isn't true to nature. If you want that, go pick up a history book about Thermopylae and that's Mm -hmm. fine. This, this is not that this is, you know, um, you know, the basics are, are true. Um, but the rest of this is is a fanciful, uh, almost fable-like edition of the story, which I think is great because, you know, we think about that, and, 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 and this reminds me of, you know, how so many of the stories that revolve around, like, the Robin Hood legend and all those kind of things, you know, some of those have basis in reality, and yet it, it, we tell fables about him because it's fun you know um and or or even the creator of the vikings show it's uh i've been watching vikings uh and you know uh ragnar lothbrook is a is a historical character but we don't know a ton about him because because of what we have it, we just have a ton of, of information so they've created this fable around this character you know in this this whole series that they've done so and in much that way i I think you're absolutely right it allows us to be able to enjoy the fable but not be fooled the thinking that this is we we shouldn't consider this real well the thing is i also in terms of this type of discussion the thing that always sort of grates against me is we the collective we the amorphous we the, the the group of of entities that we're all a part of whatever speaking generally have a tendency to pick and choose when we care about the accuracy of a story it's true and our histories right like i always go back to oliver stone right you go through his movies and they're you know oh well this is yeah if you watch jfk it's the most hypnotic fever dream of reality that's ever existed but it's an incredible story and an amazing movie and tremendous editing. Like everything about it is terrific. But if you're a young kid like I was, when you see it, you come out of that thinking, oh, my gosh, I know who really killed Kennedy. Now, blah, 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 blah. And it's like and then you grow up and you're like, oh, OK. All right. That's not quite the way it happened, probably. But any sort of. You know, and then I go back to Shakespeare and it's like, you know, how did Julius Caesar die and what type of guy was he? And it's like, well, honestly, the notion in our head primarily comes from Shakespeare's play. That's not what it really was. You know, history is a little more complex than that. And it just it, it always fascinates me because 300 comes out and everybody's like, oh, well, this isn't historically the way that it happened. This isn't how the Spartans really were. Well, of course not. And like, it's just a movie and it's a story about history, even, you know, as brilliant a film as it is, even Spike Lee's uh, X, you know, about Malcolm X, that, you know, that's a little bit of myth building, a little bit of a hagiography going on there, but that's fine because it's an incredible movie and he was an incredible person. So it's okay to, you know, like if you're going in expecting a documentary out of anything from the doors to 300 then you sort of need to shift your historical lens a little bit and understand, you know, this is a genre. This is, this is legend building and it's okay to just sort of relax and enjoy the story as it's being told and root for the good guy sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, Leonidas was, Oh, the the historical Leonidas was probably a jerk. Yeah, probably. But the Leonidas in 300, I, I would go into battle with him because he seems like a really great dude. Okay. You know, well, I'll go and, with him. And I, I think that that's one thing that I really uh, appreciated about the movie is the way in which it's able to help you see this character for who he is. And his his goal is 
to protect not just himself, but I mean, he does see the greater threat mm-hmm. uh, that this this Persian Empire uh, is on, you know, Athens and there and 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 Sparta and, and the rest of the city states there in Greece. That their their freedom to be able to choose their way of life and their city state will be gone, you know, and and it will mm-hmm. be dictated to them as to how they will live and what they will do, and they will lose the freedom that they hold so dear. And I think, you know, that's a that to me, you know, that like that that's just a classic, you know, that's a classic storyline anyway. You know, this idea of 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 mm-hmm. fighting for the freedom to live the way um, that. As a society, you choose to live, not having it dictated to you by somebody else. Right. Even if it's, uh, you know, you go back to Braveheart, right? Like that, it, was that what William Wallace was really like? No. But the whole point of the story is that there is, I mean, you can't even overlook in 300 the fact that it addresses the idea that you have corrupt people in the government who are doing things that are shaping the way that things are going and you don't know who's operating in the shadows. And then you, you know, that the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the people that live on the mountaintop, I always forget the word for them. The, oh, uh, yeah, I know what you the mean, ones with the Oracle. Yeah. yeah it's, Oracle, it's a weird yeah. word and it's like, huh? But you know, they're disgusting old men. And like the story even says, Oh, you know, they're, they're disgusting old men, but Leonidas must follow the customs. It's that idea of, oh, boo, hiss, yeah, oh, it's it's not fair sort of thing. And so, it, like, I, I think that the, the part of this movie that really gets overlooked is the fact that Leonidas is operating, you know, he's baiting the fight. And you could make an ethical argument and go, well, what he's doing is wrong. He's been told by his government not to do these things. But then in the context of the story, of course, you find out that the people that are working against him are all corrupt and they're on the take. And that in and of itself is a classic part of the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the type of story that you're going to have here. And then you also have what a brilliant thing to have the villain in this be somebody who insists that people worship him like a god, that he is, he is by nature elevated above all others. And the whole point of the fight is supposed to be nobody's elevated above anybody else. We're all people. Even though, I mean, you know, it, it even though Leonidas is a king, right? right? Well, he still has a council that's around him and he has rules and regulations and he has obligations and, and, and those sorts of things. So I, I just, I just think it's such a, a beautifully layered story. And, like what I what I really focused on this time, what really resonated with me, and something that I think gets very easily overlooked is whether you love his movies or his style or whatever, Zack Snyder gets incredible performances out of his actors. There isn't a bad performance in this movie. There isn't even the background people are exactly what they need to be. And it's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful to see because the it's such a sign of respect from the actors that the director can get those sorts of performances. And the fact that he got good performances on the whole in Dawn of the Dead, you and I disagree a little bit about, you know, one or two of them there, but like in this, this is his second feature film and he gets performances like this from seasoned actors. I mean, that's, you know, like Gerard Butler, he's never getting away from this role. Everybody will see him as Leonidas for his whole career, no matter what else he's in. That's that's an amazing thing. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that too. You know, uh, Gerard Butler, obviously, you know, his career has been one of, I think, ups and downs, and this is definitely an up. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, he's he's had some unfortunate incidences with, you know, like the London's Falling type movies, uh, and he's hey, kind of gotten hits. relegated to that, which is disappointing because here he is so powerful, he's so good, he's he is King Leonidas, he has the strength, but he also has the vulnerability, and you know, I think of that. Wonderful scene with uh, Lena Headley as, you know, they're uh, in bed together and she's like, what's bothering my husband, you know, and he kind of bears his heart about how he is worried about Greece. He's worried about the fact that he knows what he needs to do, but it means 
the possibility of losing his position, losing his life, um, losing his reputation, losing everything, basically, to do what he knows he needs to do. And it's such a vulnerable scene for a guy who the rest of the movie, there's no vulnerability in, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. he's the guy who screams, this is Sparta, and kicks a guy down a well and and starts basically like a come-at-me-bro fight with the Persians. You know, so uh, I I think you're absolutely right in that. But, I mean, then you've got David Wenham, who had been in, obviously, the Lord of the Rings movies. And here he's fantastic as as our our narrator and our storyteller. Uh, Lena Headley is, is, you know, she's gorgeous, but at the same time has such strength and character. And I really liked that Zach added that storyline for her where she's willing to do whatever it takes to support her husband and the greater good of Greece, regardless of the cost to herself. Uh, and I, I was really appreciative that they gave her more to do in the story. Uh, you know, there's uh, such a beautiful moment between uh, her and Gerard Butler when he's decided, do I kick this guy down the well? Yeah, <laughs> and he casts this glance back at her, and she gives this little nod of "kick him down the well," and like you see it happen. But but that's the thing. Getting to your point of the vulnerability, right? Is yeah, he's oh, I'm tough. Oh, once I'm committed, I'm going to do this thing. But you see that he has this connection with her. That if she had if she had said no, bridge too far, he would listen to her. He respected. And followed her advice in that little tiny moment. You can see that they're they're more than man and wife. They're best friends. And he trusts her implicitly. He knows she'll never steer him wrong. And in terms of everything else, I, I think that she gets overlooked in this film an awful lot. Because to your point about the subplot, you're... It, it makes you sick to your stomach, everything that happens with her and how much she's willing to sacrifice and endure just to try to get him help. The, she She's so abused and humiliated and it makes it so satisfying when she gets the comeuppance later. Yes. And it's, yes. you know, it's a difficult, like she has a very difficult scene in this film and it's played in such a way that it's really, it's really affecting. It's really humanizing. And it's, it is, um, it's never lurid. It's not prurient. It's, it's supposed to be what it is. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's handled as delicately as a scene like that can be. And you know, like it's it's not my favorite scene of the movie, but it's supposed to illustrate all of those things we're talking about with her character. You know, and I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the way in which he does, um, you know, when he does the love scene between uh, Leonidas and Gorgo, uh, you know, I think uh, it's beautifully framed and it's beautifully uh, captured, you know, this is two consenting adults who love each other very much, enjoying each other to the fullest, right? You know, it, mm-hmm. it, the the beauty of marriage, and and so then when you have the scene um, later on with her and Theron, um, and or you have what I I affectionately refer to as the den of iniquity uh, in uh, Xerxes' uh-huh. uh, harem, you know, where these things are happening with these people, but it's not necessarily. Because they want it to be happening, you know? Like, Xerxes says he's a benevolent god. He says he's wonderful. But yet, you know these things are happening around him because people feel compelled to to perform these acts in front of him because it makes him feel good or happy or whatever. Same thing with what happens with Theron. You know, she, she allows this to happen to herself because she's doing something that she doesn't want to have happen, but she thinks it's going to help her husband, help the cause, all of these things. And so I think, you know, Snyder is really able to juxtapose all of those things really well. And and mm-hmm. again, I think it kind of helps you see um, exactly what it is that Leonidas is worried about losing. 
You know, it, mm-hmm. it helps you see um, the beauty that he's worried about going away. Uh, you know, if, if they are under, uh, you know, Persian rule, what's going to happen to our world? What's going to happen to our way of life? What's going to happen to our families? And, you know, all those things. Um, and so I think that's one of those places where I really saw how, you know, different scenes help bring the story together in a really interesting way. Um, and, it, it, you know, I wouldn't normally say that, you know, a sex scene is, is needed, but the way that it's done here, I think it helps really justify, one, it being in the film, but it helps then juxtapose against those other scenes to help you understand the reason to fight. Well, and also the, you know, that you have the Oracle who's basically like a sex slave for the the Mm -hmm. old decrepit man on the top of the that like there's a lot of commentary i think that snyder works into his movies that people can't overlook um and i like i i like what you were saying here he is showing it in all of these different contexts to say I show it to you this way, it's beautiful. I show it to you this way, it's disgusting. I show it to you this way, it's unsettling. I show it to you this way, it's enraging. But it's all, you know, like it's it's a really waves lapping on the shore. And in terms of losing the way of life, it's really something that I think is a fascinating question to explore because there is an anxiety that, happens for people as they get older and as the world starts changing and so you know there there's a a a discussion to be had about how much anxiety it causes leonidas how much anxiety should there be how because the way that it's presented when you know you could easily make the argument why why fight it you know because the the ambassadors show up and they say, look, live how you want to live. All we ask is, you know, you kneel and you, you show your your fealty and you just acknowledge Xerxes, right? What's the big deal? But for Leonidas, it's a bridge too far. You bring me the heads of kings that you've killed and you make it very clear that you're not, you know, your words might be sweet, but you're demanding something that I'm not, I'm not going to give you. And that I'm, I'm sure that we as a people don't want to give. Now, put aside that last comment, but that in and of itself, when you boil it down, if the ambassadors show up without those heads and without talking the big game and simply say, hey, look, we, we actually don't want anything from you. We just want you to be part of the empire. Live how you want to live. We don't care. That's completely different from their manner and uh you know i I think that's an important thing to talk about too is the way you approach leonidas in the beginning is going to determine the way he reacts yeah I, i think that that idea of how we you know negotiate with people you know, how mm-hmm. we uh, present our case to people uh, is something that's really interesting to pull out of here. And it is something that I think, obviously, it could have been different if they had approached it differently. And, of course, all of world history could have been different, you know, if uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the the Spartans had been uh, approached differently by Persia. Um, you know, we, mm-hmm. we could have been a completely different world. Um, and so, and I, I think... The, the question that the movie does rightly ask are, are what are the things that in our lives are non-negotiables, right? Like, what are the things that, that are a bridge too far? And how do we find what those are? And how do we know when to act and when not to act? And what action to take? You know, like, I think those are all really important questions. And, and what is fascinating to me is how... I'm finding these movies to be much more um, relevant now 
than maybe even when they first came out because of some of the questions that they're asking or just the world that they're portraying. You know, like last week we talked about Dawn of the Dead and this whole idea of like lockdowns and like, you know, being inside all the time and all that kind of stuff and being scared about going outside, you know, all that stuff. Um, This movie, you know, with this idea of like, where do we fight? How do we fight? What do we fight? What are we fighting? Do we fight at all? You know, I mean, those are those are all mm-hmm. questions that we have to continually keep asking. And, you know, we, we live in a world where it's like people are choosing to act in a certain way, you know, all the time. Um, and, and our reaction that what is our reaction going to be? What should our reaction be? What's what's the reaction that, um, you know, makes things better, not worse? You know, and, and, and that, those are the questions that Leonidas is having to wrestle with. Um, and what's interesting here is that the choice that he makes is that regardless of whether it costs him his life, he's going to do what he believes to be and what he knows to be the right thing, regardless of what anybody else thinks, you know, like he knows it to be the right thing. Well, what's interesting too, though, is something else that I thought about because talking about, you know, Responding to what you're saying about, you know, the, these sorts of questions that you have. I mean, if you really wanted to sort of like pick it apart and have, a, I think, a really interesting discussion, if you did want to come at it, you could say Leonidas in this movie basically makes a Gulf of Tonkin decision where he baits the fight that doesn't need to happen. He could have, you know, fought other ways or figured out other things or, or you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He goes out and he seeks out the fight. Everybody says, don't go fight. No, you're prohibited. Don't do it. And we can sit here and say, well, he did the right thing. But that's part of the manipulation of the movie, right? Is sitting there and saying, well, of course, I think he did the right thing because he's the hero and the music swelled and all of those sorts of things. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying that like there is enough material here, enough to dig into because of the fact that it is consciously an anti-anti-war movie, that it is consciously saying this is the story being told on the battlefield to hype up the troops. Snyder, I'm absolutely positive, is aware of the fact that you can sit there and you can pick apart those moments and say, well, wait a minute, though, and have those sorts of discussions about it. And Leonidas makes his own error. He turns somebody aside who wants to help. Now, you say, well, Leonidas is... Reasoning is all of that, but couldn't he find something for this guy to do? This guy would have died in battle probably in 20 seconds, but it averts the whole other problem. So Leonidas has his own shortcomings, and you could you could pick apart why he thinks that and those sorts of things. Um, so I, I, I just, all of that to say that I think that there are, there's a lot of philosophically rich territory from any direction, and what I think it, the tightrope that this movie walks is that it doesn't say that anybody's wrong when they interpret it, right? Where nobody's 100% right, nobody's 100% wrong, and so it gets right at that whole idea that history is more complex than, you know, what you might be seeing on screen. And I know that for one, I mean, after I watched this movie, I was like, oh, I want to learn more about Thermopylae. I, I, you know, I know about it, but I didn't really studied it or anything like that so i went out and i started looking some other stuff up and that's kind of a great thing because yeah that's what you want to happen okay i want to go out and find out what the real story is as you know you know all of that to say that i think that there's enough material here to power these sorts of discussions for a long time yeah and i think i i really like to your point you know that you know, we have failings in our characters, you know, even our hero has a weakness, you know, and that is maybe he's too beholden to one ideal mm-hmm. when maybe he should be more lenient. You know, um, the, the hardness of the Spartan world is also its detriment, right? Um, and it causes mm-hmm. them to have a much more difficult time than they needed to have. Uh, when, you know, they, they turn away somebody for reasons to which today we would be like, like you said, really it just, you know, put the guy in the back and let him, you know, like, so, um, let him be a scout. Exactly. Anything. What, you know, so, um, but that 
ability to give us complexity and nuance in a movie that I think most people don't see any nuance in. They just see it as a uh, sandals and shields swords movie with a bunch of buff guys running around half naked, you know. Um, and I think I think the 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 brilliance of this is that it it's disguised like that. And I guess if you wanted to take it that way, you could. But there really is a lot more going on in this film than meets the eye. And I think that's the beauty of it. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with, you know, we, and we've talked about it, that Zach as a director. He's bringing all these things, you know. And, and I think we saw that in, in Dawn of the Dead, and, and that's continued here. You know, you could just make a zombie movie and have it say nothing and just be cheap thrills. But that's not what it was. You know, this movie could be the same thing. It could just literally be lots of blood and some boobs. And that's not what this is. No, it isn't. And I I think that the, you know, to get back to Snyder's visual flair first thing before I get back to that, I always forget it's going to be another year or two or whatever, or a couple of years, a few years until I see it again. And every single time I rewatch it, I will see the the gathered group, and I will look at it, and I will say, oh, wait, that's right. Michael Fassbender's in this. Yes, it's so Forget great. Forget that 100% of the time. He's I'm like, so Come on. good in this movie, too, in the little bit that yes, he, he has. Well, you know, I also sit there. I'm like, come on, Magneto. It's their metal shields. You could really do something with this, but whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> all right. Let's write it into X-Men continuity. But anyway. There you go. Um, <laughs> the, the thing with the the... the Visual flair is I, I want to double back to that, you know, as we're, I think we're sort of like playing things out here is I will go ahead. I, I, I'm just going to ask you if you agree. I suspect that you do, but I don't think that this movie is as successful or as enjoyable in the hands of a different director. I think or cinematographer. <laughs> I think that the creative crew on this movie is the whole reason we're still talking about it this many years later. This could have been handed off to somebody who wouldn't have done it this way. And for all of the people that like to come at this and say, oh, well, it just looks like, in a, you know, in the, the comic book brought to life sort of thing. And they, they stole direct shots out of it. They, the comic book was basically a storyboard. Okay. So you saw the storyboard ahead of time. Great. I, I I don't think that there was any other approach for this, and I don't see another director doing it this way. And that's that's why I think no matter what, no matter what he does, no matter how we feel about his movies coming up, this will always be the touchstone for Zack Snyder. The same way that the Batman movies, no matter what else he does, that Dark Knight trilogy, that is Christopher Nolan's touchstone. That's his breakthrough point. That is is the the one where you can always go back and, and play out from there to get somebody in the conversation. This is always going to be, I think, the primary entry point for Zack Snyder. No, I, th- I agree with that. And I think... You know, you mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, Larry Fong is here with him. And I think that makes a big difference as well. You know, his his he's going to continue working with Zach on Watchmen, Sucker Punch, as well as Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Uh, And so those are the films that you'll see him in. I I didn't know this, but he also did Super 8. So um, which we're going to be covering a little bit later on. uh, He was also the uh, the the DP for Lost. Yeah. Yeah. The original DP for Lost. Yeah. he, uh, which he has an incredible visual, uh, you know, uh, next oh, yeah. to uh, Deacons. I, I feel like uh, Larry Fong really has a, a, a sense and style uh, to the way he shoots things, uh, the lighting mm-hmm. he chooses. And obviously it really mixed with Zach uh, and, and what he was going for here. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, Zach wanted to do this even before he got the opportunity. He, this is a comic he wanted to turn into a movie. And thankfully, they hired him to do it. And I, I think you're, he was the right choice to make this film. You know, he understands visual style and he's able to get those visual elements. And one of the things that really I just was watching very carefully is, 
you know, people make fun of his use of slow motion. And yet, you have to be shooting a scene so perfectly to make the slow motion actually work that the amount of work that that takes, I don't think people realize. It's not just slowing down a scene. It's like everything about the scene needs to be pretty much perfect for it to work in slow motion. So here, when you're having these characters come at each other and you're you're having these like really cool movements, but they're going slow, that's not an easy thing to do. It probably takes mm-hmm. twice as much work to make sure that everything is perfect. And then, of course, you know, they, you can augment things with CGI, but it's still it it takes a ton of work to make that work and and so the way that he is able to compose shots and again i mean i I, i've said this before i think um here when we were talking one of our previous episodes here on snyder cuts but zach has a visual imagination uh you can see it in the work that he's done on all of his films he does a lot of his own storyboarding uh, he knows what he wants uh, in, in much the same way that, um, you know, Lucas would get on set and he'd be like, oh, let's do this, you know, and like he has a picture in his mind that he's trying to get to. And um, I think there's it's 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 really good. And like you said, I do think that this is the cultural touchstone for Zack Snyder. And this is if there was any mo- movie that's quintessentially Zack Snyder it is 300 um, because everything that we'll come to expect from him is here. Like, this is where mm-hmm. everything that you would expect from Snyder is here. And, I mean, gosh, you know, we talked about Snowstein Meyer, and you see many of the same types of things he was doing at this completely refined into that, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. this is an artist who has finally, I think, completely found what he's going to be in this film, and that's one of the things that makes 300 so special as a movie, uh, you know, for Zack Snyder fans or, or just movie fans in general. I mean, this is um, a visually arresting movie. Every frame, mm-hmm. every shot, it is pulling you into the story, you know. And, you know, I think, again, people, too, don't realize how much work this would have been to you. You're shooting all this stuff in a blue box, right? And then you have to make everything else work. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of work to do on, in post-production. Um, and it's a lot of work, you know, for the director's vision to come through. And so um, I think it shows, for everyone involved, it shows patience. Uh, and it shows clarity of vision to make this work on screen. And in so many places where you could, like, open the comic book and be like, Oh man, there it is on screen and live action. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's a neat thing. That's a really neat thing. But at the same time, for it not to be afraid to slightly tweak or add to the story and that's where you get like we talked about with Leonidas's wife, you know, adding um, more to her story and everything to make it even better. Mhm. I, I mean, I agree. I, before we get to like any sort of ratings, though, I want to ask you, is there anything on this that you would adjust or trim or remove or anything that you think needed more added to it? No is an acceptable answer, too. Yeah, it's such a good I'm question. I'm just saying. And I, just, I was like running through things in my mind. And, you know, I, I, if anything you could have trimmed, you may have trimmed, you know, the den of, den of iniquity scene a little bit. You know, I don't know, necessarily know if it needs to be quite, you know, it, it's not super long, but I, I don't, it's, I, you know, brevity is, is, is sometimes better in a scene like that. But I think, again, as I talked about earlier, I think it really does have a purpose for showing just how um, non-freeing this character of Xerxes is. Like he's not mm-hmm. like if, if you notice, everybody has chains on, you know, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether the chains are cosmetic or, you know, it's supposed to look cool or whatever, like everybody is in chains. And so even visually, we're being represented here that this is not a life that anybody wants because it's a life that if, uh, devolves into you 
in some way being in chains. And so, mm -hmm. you know, no, I, I can't really think of anything that I would change. To, I mean, was there anything that stuck out to you that you're like, no, I might have tweaked that or I might have, you know, move that around or I mean, because I know you're big, obviously, on editing. So, uh, no, I can honestly say I, I would even respond to uh, what you were saying about that is I wouldn't even cut anything from there just because it is overwhelming. And so it's supposed to be overwhelming. And so you you get an appreciation for how overwhelming it is. Right, how over the top it is, and why somebody might not be able to resist so much temptation around them when they'd gone without their whole lives, you know that sort of thing. And I, you know, just you know what? One other question that occurs to me: uh, What is your favorite moment from this movie? What's your your pull? What's your what's the thing when I say three hundred that you go to? You know, I mean, I guess I could I, anybody could say the the well moment but uh i really like t there's there's two moments one is where he says goodbye to his wife they don't even say i love you but it doesn't need to be said and then he's sending back his friend to tell the story and he's like mm -hmm. any message for your wife and he says none that needs to be said and mm -hmm. it's it's such a great like those two moments together are so perfect for this film and and and, and the characters that they are you know it's um because you could have easily uh, had a director fall into sentimentality in that moment but he, Zach no he he stays true to who these characters are and so to me those are the because they are linked those are that's what I I actually think of now. Uh, for me, I always go back to a hundred percent of the time. The first thing that pops into my head is when he looks at the guy and he just stares at him and he's, and he says, may you live a long life. And just the way he delivers that, you know, just the, you're going to have to live with this, what you've done. And I hope that you live, you know, for a very long time. And you have to remember forever what it was that you did. And he's basically, he doesn't say, he's not saying to the guy, go to hell. He's not saying to the guy, I hate you. He's saying, you got to live with this. And you know that it was wrong. Like, it's such a powerful moment. I love that moment. It's so perfectly delivered. The angle of the camera as Leonidas is looking down. The, the the furtive look down, like all of this stuff is so, so amazing. But, you know, and then parallel with that, I would go just to that well scene, but not that this is Sparta moment. But again, that scene where he has that, that one second nonverbal communication with his wife and she gives him that little nod, just that idea, like in that moment, just in that scene, you get an idea of their bond. And it's so incredible. It's, the, it's the type of bond everybody wants with the person they love. They want that. You know? And that's, I think that's just really cool. That's when she was like, do it. <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> basically. Man. So, um, <laughs> I, I is think, there any question what we're going to rate this? Yeah. Um, I am. I, so, where do you go with 300? Five. This is this is this is a, a movie that should be a added to like the National Film Registry. This is a movie that is incredibly important to the moment. It's incredibly important to filmmaking. It's I I, I cannot praise this movie enough. And to borrow a sentiment from another uh, guy that we both know from his time here on, on TFM, Mike Schindler, right? He always likes to say about certain directors, "Oh well, he did." x or she did she directed y or you know something like that he goes that'll always get me in the door for everything they do afterward because of 300 i will always give Zack snyder another chance doesn't matter oh i didn't love that movie don't doesn't matter this is the guy that did 300 he might he's he might hit that magic spot again so even even when i've walked out of other movies and i'm like yeah i always think 300 and you might say oh well you know so why would you be excited about his version of justice league is it because you saw the shortcomings in the theatrical i'm like no the theatrical one was uneven and i wasn't nuts about it but so it's all right you know it wasn't as bad as everybody says it was but the reason i want to see his version of justice league is because he did 300 
I want to see what this guy does when, he, when he's given everything. When he has the shot to make the movie that he wants to make, I see 300 in my head. I'm like, okay, that. If you can give him the opportunity to do that, knock yourself out. So where do you end up with it? Yeah, this is really interesting because uh, when I went to log this on Letterboxd, I had had it at three and a half. And I was like, oh, dear. Really? And yeah, I think I'm going to be with you in the sense that I do think this is a five star film. And, and part of that has to do with, you know, the fact that this is Zach fully in his element at this point. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that, you know, of all of his movies, this is the most quintessential him. But, you know, in many ways, um, when I look at this movie and the questions it asks and the themes that it has, many of those are going to play out in his other movies, you know, and it's mm-hmm. going to um, it actually is going to be interesting because. We're going to get a lot of the same questions in movies like Watchmen or Man of Steel or BVS, you know, of of how does a character respond? You know, how does a character do the right thing? And regardless of what anybody else thinks, you know, like and it, it, it was interesting to me to kind of see how um, the questions that kind of drive a director um drive a lot of his films coming up. And so that's fascinating to me, you know, and, and, and honestly, some of those questions we already saw in Dawn of the Dead, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to kind of see the consistency so far of Zack Snyder as a director in the sense of um, the, the topics he likes to cover, the types of movies he likes to deal with, and that we're seeing... Uh, very different um, films come out, you know, in the sense of like comic book movies, zombie movies, um, you know, dystopian movies we're going to see later on. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it would be fascinating to see how an animated movie plays into all of this, you know, with Guardians of the Gahul. So, it's such a fun process so far. And, you know, 300 really is a movie that, in the end, this is the movie, like, you, this is the movie that puts Zack on the map. Like, people mm-hmm. know that name because of 300. And it's yep. a, it's it's why people started to then pay attention to him. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's going to be really interesting because, you know, John... Uh, next week, uh, we get into a very, I would say, um, for some people controversial movie, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, we get into the fact that Zack Snyder goes next to Watchmen, Alan Moore's incredible comic, uh, and he tries to bring the unfilmable to life and it's going to be fascinating to see where we both fall uh with watchmen so which unfortunately for 602 club listeners you may have already heard my episode on watchmen (laughs) that we did here so don't go listen to that one wait till next week on snyder cuts where john and i talk about it because i think it's going to be a really fascinating conversation especially since it's going to be my first time revisiting it in a very, very long time. And I'm going to be diving in with the director's cut. And I can promise everybody that this is the promise of the show from earlier, too. I'm I'm not in the hate Zack Snyder camp and I'm not in the love Zack Snyder camp. And I can tell you very specifically that as bullish as I've been with 300, my experience with Watchmen originally was not that positive. So, you know, we're going to have a nice, interesting, honest discussion next week. Yeah, it's what makes this show, you know, so much fun to do, uh, and I can't wait to get there. Uh, so, if uh, anybody wants to catch up with you, John, just see what else you have got going on, or maybe they would like to talk about a little 300 with you, where can people find you? Well, gosh, I don't know why anybody would want to talk to me, but if you want to find me online, I'm Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E, on your social network of choice. My preferred social networks are actually Goodreads and Letterboxd, because... You know, it's fun to talk 
you know, share movie reviews and book reviews and stuff like that. So there you go. Um, and you can also find me over on the nerd party, uh, regularly, uh, co-hosting a show called house lights, uh, where we look at the work of, uh, various directors and also on a show called aggressive negotiations, a star Wars podcast of a slightly different bent than you might be used to. And, uh, I, I co-host that show with, uh, my dear friend, Matt rushing. Go figure. Which, uh, it's so much fun to do. So I do hope that people will check that out. Uh, you can find me on social media platforms under Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, you can find me here on the network, also doing the Six Hundred Two Club, which is our general geek show, talking about all of the fandoms we love. As we mentioned, we've covered some of the films we're going to be covering here, John and I, uh, but in a completely different way. So I hope you'll check those out. Uh, and of course, you could find me doing literary tracks uh, about the books and the comics of Star Trek, as well as the Orb. Uh, about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Both of those were with uh, Chris Jones. And then on the Nerd Party Network, I am talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And as we're recording this, Dre and I are almost done with the series. So it's really cool. It's been a great journey. So I hope that you will check that out. But you know what? Thank you so much for joining us. And this is Snyder Cuts. Snyder Cuts. 